Welcome to the Director's Chair, a Lowy Institute podcast. My name is Michael Forleylove and I'm the Executive Director of the Lowy Institute. On the Director's Chair, I sit down with political leaders, policymakers and commentators in order to understand what's happening in the world. I'm delighted that my guest on this episode of the Director's Chair is an old friend of mine, Martin Indyk, the well-known Australian-American diplomat, Middle East scholar and distinguished fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. Martin has been associated with the Lowy Institute from the very beginning, serving on the Institute's board since day one. He was born in London and raised in Sydney. As a young man, he moved to Washington and he's been a player in DC for nearly four decades, serving twice as America's ambassador to Israel, as Assistant Secretary of State and as Special Envoy for Middle East Peace. Martin currently serves as a Distinguished Fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations and he's one of my board members. Thank you, Martin Indyk, for joining me today live from New York City on the director's chair. Thank you, Michael. It's a real pleasure to be with you. First of all, Martin, I want to hear about the Australian part of your life, if I may. So tell us a bit about your family. Where were they from? What was their story? And what was it that brought you all to Australia? So both my parents were born in Poland to Jewish families. And my father left with his family at the age of six and migrated to Bondi Beach, mm-hmm. where he grew up in a small Jewish community around Bondi Beach. And his father, my grandfather was a tailor, had a um, shop in George Street in uh-huh. uh, Sydney, where he sold suits to new immigrants. My mother went from Poland to what was then British Mandate Palestine. Mm-hmm. And she went to school there. And then in what Uh, I refer to as the first intifada, the first uh, Arab revolt in 1936, she and my grandfather migrated to New Zealand. And so then when she met my father, uh, she moved to Sydney from Auckland. But background was essentially Polish, Jewish, even though they both essentially grew up in, in Australia and New Zealand. And whereabouts in Sydney did you grow up? And what are your memories of Sydney as a boy and a young man? So I grew up in Castle Craig on the North Shore Mm -hmm. of Sydney, but I was very much a Sydney boy. Spent first, what was it, 30 years of my life essentially in Sydney Mm. with a few years in Canberra doing my PhD in international relations at the Australian National University. But I went to Sydney University and, and it was life in which I... I grew up in this kind of insular Sydney Jewish community, which was heavily influenced by Hungarian Jewish migrants. Mm -hmm. But my family was Polish, as I said. My memory of that is very strong because every weekend, my parents, even though they were not Holocaust survivors, would hang around with the Holocaust survivors Mm -hmm. in Sydney. And they were our friends and I can remember very well as a young boy noticing the tattooed numbers on their arms mm. and uh, asking my parents about that. But that was the kind of environment. It was a fairly insular Jewish environment, which was heavily kind of Eastern European in its culture, which was kind of strange given the broader Australian culture that we existed in. Now, your whole life, you've been a student of the Middle East. What is it about the region that fascinates you so much? Well, it really does have to do with with growing up in Sydney, in the Jewish community there, and feeling that I was somewhat different and looking for my identity. I went to Israel as a 
first year university student with a group of 30 other Jewish kids from Sydney and Melbourne. Mm -hmm. And that had a profound effect on me. I was at an impressionable young age. It was my first trip overseas. Israel was in its heroic phase after the Six-Day War. Mm. That was in 1969 that I was there. Mm. And it really had a powerful impact on me in terms of my identity. Mm. I went back after I graduated in 1973 mm. and spent some time there. I was going to do a master's degree in international relations, which was my passion by that stage, mm. when the 1973 Yom Kippur War mm. broke out, mm. and I was in Jerusalem when that happened. I stayed through that war, and that really had a profound uh, impact on my sense of purpose. Mm. It was a kind of epiphany where I decided that during that war that I was somehow, I didn't know how, going to kind of devote my life to trying to help Israel and make peace with its neighbors. And living through that war and seeing the role that the United States played, first mm. of all, in helping Israel turn the tide of battle with a massive military resupply. And then watching Henry Kissinger, mm. as Secretary of State, negotiating first a ceasefire and then engaging in his shuttle diplomacy, where he laid the foundations for the American-led peace process, I kind of decided at that point that I was going to study, learn as much as possible about the role of the United States mm. in settling the Arab-Israeli conflict. And so I went back to Canberra, did my PhD in the Department of International Relations there on the role of the United States in settling the Arab-Israeli conflict. And essentially from that point on, although I did a few other things along the way, that has been my obsession. Mm and the focus for my uh, life's work. And a wonderful obsession it is. Now, you moved to Washington, to the imperial capital in 1982, and from this angle anyway, it looks like you've never looked back. You started as a researcher at APAC. You were the founding executive director of the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. What did it feel like as a young Australian entering that milieu of power players and journalists and diplomats and think tankers? So. You know, I had studied all of these people and mm. I suddenly uh, had an opportunity to meet the Bill Quants and the Harold Saunders. These were the people who had worked on the peace process with Kissinger and mm. were still heavily involved and had written about it and so on. And, and suddenly uh, I found myself really at ground zero for the Arab-Israeli peace process. And it was serendipitous. It's not that I had planned it this way. I was on a sabbatical at Columbia University when a friend called up and said, you know, I'm going to Washington. You want to come with me and, and help me set up this research department at the, as you said, APAC, which is the American-Israel Public Affairs Committee, which mm. was the kind of the pro-Israel lobby, mm. the vaunted pro-Israel lobby. And that kind of gave me the entree. And suddenly I found myself at the very heart of everything that I'd been studying mm. up to that point. And I said, wow, this is great. Mm -hmm. And what was truly great about it, Michael, truly great thing about America, and it seduced me mm. into becoming an American, mm -hmm. was the openness mm. of the policy debate. Mm. Here I was 
guy with a funny accent mm -hmm. from Australia talking with these experts and, and people who'd had experience in government and engaging with them. And not one of them ever said to me, what the hell's an Australian doing telling us how to run our Middle East policy? They were quite happy to welcome me into that policy debate for what I brought to the table, not for where I came from. And, and that was really refreshing. Mm. So I suddenly found myself in the place where I wanted to be, even though I didn't know it. I mean, it's not as if I intended to go there, mm. but there I was. And then, you know, fast forward 10 years, I'm working in that policy milieu, setting up this think tank that was working on, mm -hmm. on US policy in the Middle East and gathering together a whole lot of experts to engage on these issues. And, you know, 10 years from the point at which I migrated to Washington, Bill Clinton is running for uh, president, decides that he needs a Middle East expert on his campaign team, mm -hmm. somebody who will keep him out of trouble with the Jewish community. And somebody recommended me and suddenly I'm, you know, advising him on his Middle East policy. And he'd like me not for what I had to say about the Middle East, but because I had a funny accent like he did. Mm -hmm. And I have to say one thing in that regard, my Australian accent has taken me a long way <laughs> in America, as you may have yourself discovered, they like Australian accents. But anyway, so he, he won. He became president. Mm -hmm. And I went into the White House as his Middle East advisor. And this is, as I say, 10 years from when I'd migrated from Sydney. 20 years since I had had that epiphany in Jerusalem during the Yom Kippur War of 1973. All right. So Bill Clinton is elected president of the United States and you're at his right hand as his Middle East advisor. Describe that moment to us. Well, it's important that I explain that that moment in which Bill Clinton became president and I became his Middle East advisor in the National Security Council in the White House. Mm was a moment when all the stars seemed to have aligned for a breakthrough to a comprehensive peace in the Middle East. The Soviet Union had collapsed. The United States had just led a coalition against Saddam Hussein and, and defeated him and booted him out of Kuwait. All of Israel's Arab neighbors, thanks to the diplomatic efforts of Jim Baker as Secretary of State after the Gulf War, all of them were in direct negotiations with Israel. And there was no longer any kind of potential war coalition on the Arab side against Israel. So it was like there was everything was aligned for a breakthrough to peace. And Yitzhak Rabin had just been elected mm -hmm. prime minister in Israel. Mm -hmm. And he came to Washington, the beginning of the Clinton administration, and told Bill Clinton, I have a mandate to take calculated risks for peace. And Clinton's response to him was, well, if you're going to do that, I will underwrite your risk-taking. And they forged a partnership at that point, and we were off to the races. Within nine months, uh, Yasser Arafat and Yitzhak Rabin were on the White House lawn shaking hands, and the Oslo Accords were signed. And I guess it was, what, six months after that, we had uh, an Israel-Jordan peace treaty mm. in the bag. I was then sent out to Israel as Clinton's ambassador to work with 
Yitzhak Rabin, who was still prime minister, on what we thought was going to be the next peace deal, which was a Syrian peace deal, because Rabin had told Clinton that he was prepared to make a full withdrawal from the Golan Heights. Mm -hmm. And that was a necessary territorial requirement for an Israeli-Syrian peace deal. So I went out to Israel's ambassador thinking that we were going to get the Syrian deal and that a Lebanese deal would follow very quickly from that because the Syrians at mm -hmm. that point controlled Lebanon and we'd be done. Mm -hmm. In the first four years, as I told Clinton when I first went in with him, we can get four peace deals in your first four years. He'd said to me, oh, <laughs> I want to do that. And, you know, it looked like we were actually going to do it. Mm -hmm. It was an amazing run up. But, you know, like Icarus, we flew too close to the sun. And within five months of my being in Israel, Yitzhak Rabin was assassinated. Mm. And the whole peace process cratered. Bibi Netanyahu was elected. Mm. And we ended up really struggling to try to keep the process going. And what was Bill Clinton like to work for? Well, he was great. I loved working for him. He was, he was a big character, but he was someone who, you know, would look at you when he talked to you like you were the most important person in the world. And when he put his arm around you, you would just melt. He had that, that incredible charismatic effect. He craved human contact. Mm. It was, in fact, his tragic flaw, mm -hmm. uh, as we ended up discovering. Mm -hmm. But that was his great charm and, and asset. Now, on top of that, he was a really smart politician mm. and a really quick learner. And he was devoted from the get-go to trying to achieve peace in the Middle East. But he became very attached to Yitzhak Rabin. In many ways, Rabin was like a father figure to him. Mm. He didn't have a father growing up. Mm. We had an abusive father and then his father left. And Yitzhak Rabin kind of played that role. He admired him tremendously. Mm. So they went through a baptism of fire, each of them, in a, in a way, together. Rabin facing terrible terrorism and having to make tough decisions. And then with the Oklahoma bombing, Clinton had to go through that too. And I remember that moment. I was in every meeting that Clinton had with Rabin. Mm. And at that moment afterwards, Rabin came and, and expressed his admiration for the way that Clinton had handled the Oklahoma bombing. And it was like that moment at which the relationship between them changed. They became kind of equals. Mm. And so you saw that. I don't know whether your listeners will remember the, the moment when Rabin was assassinated and, mm. and then Clinton went out on the, in the Rose Garden to announce it and to say goodbye to his friend. He said, Shalom, Haver, goodbye, friend. And uh, it was a deeply emotional moment for him. He really took very seriously, even up to this day, a commitment to try to redeem Rabin's legacy by achieving peace. It became a lot harder to do afterwards, and in the end, he didn't make it, but he was deeply devoted to it because of his relationship with Rabin. You mentioned earlier your own deep relationship with Israel. You've been going there for many decades. You've got lots of friends, one or two adversaries perhaps in Israel as well. Is Rabin the Israeli leader that you personally admired the most? Talk to us a bit about some of the Israeli prime ministers that you've worked with. Well, I actually 
worked with five Israeli prime ministers during the time I was ambassador. I was ambassador twice, as you mentioned. Clinton sent me back in, in the last year when Barack became prime minister. But I, I worked with personally directly when I was ambassador with Rabin, then with Perez. Then when Perez was defeated, I worked with Netanyahu. Then when Netanyahu was defeated, I came back and worked with Barack. And then when Barack was defeated, I worked with Sharon, Ariel Sharon. So I basically knew and worked closely with all five of them. Then I became friendly with Omer as well. Mm. Uh, so essentially, I know all of the Israeli prime ministers uh, going back to um, Yitzhak Rabin. And yes, Rabin was by far the most impressive. And it was partly because he was a great warrior, war hero of the Six-Day War, Mr. Security in the sense that he understood Israel's security needs. But he was also a man who, having gone through multiple wars, was determined to bring Israel to peace. And he had the trust of the Israeli people, at least enough of them, to be able to you know, commit his people to that task, as difficult as it was and as complicated as it was with the Palestinians. But he, he uh, understood what needed to be done, and he was just amazing. His ability to analyze a situation, to read the map, and to decide on a course of action that was courageous mm. and enlightened and determined. So he, he, he was amazing. Let me ask you about the current Prime Minister of Israel. To an outside observer, it's surprising that every time Israel has an election over the past decade or so, somehow uh, Netanyahu seems to end up as Prime Minister. And indeed, this week, President Rivlin asked Bibi to try to form a new coalition government, even while he stands trial on corruption charges. What is it about Bibi, Martin? Why is he so good at staying in power? Because he's a very skilled politician a very skilled communicator and a determined survivalist. What matters to him is his political survival. I would contrast him with what I said about Rabin. He doesn't believe in taking his people to peace. He believes that you know the world is, is a hostile place, that in every generation there's a, some enemy that rises up to try to destroy the Jews, the Jewish people, or the Jewish state, and uh, his job is to defend it. So he has a very dark view of history, and that informs his approach to the conflict with the Arabs. And so I think that his, uh, the key to his longevity, and he has been the longest-serving uh, Israeli prime minister, is that he's a very good politician who has honed his skills at maintaining coalitions that enable him to stay in power. And, you know, Israeli politics is quite different to Australian politics or mm. American politics. It's not a Westminster system. It's mm. proportional representation. And, mm. and no party uh, gets a majority. You have to cobble together a majority of disparate parties. And he's genius at that. And so he's been able to survive. He has not, in four elections, been able to put together a, a stable ruling coalition of his preference, which is a right-wing religious uh, coalition. He's failed each time at that, and he failed this time again. He's been given the opportunity to try to form a government, but he doesn't have any clear way to do that because mm. he got the largest number of votes, but he... Mm. 
wasn't able to get enough votes to form a government. And so ironically, he's now dependent to get a coalition majority on an Arab Islamist party. You know, just to show you his survival skills, he ran against the Arabs a couple of elections ago, claiming that they were coming out in droves Mm. to defeat him. It was quite a racist statement at the time. And yet now he's managed to turn around and convince this small Arab party with its four votes, Mm. four critical votes, that they should join him in uh, helping him form a government. So that's a testament, I think, to his political skills that he's able to to even reach out across the aisle and uh, and bring his erstwhile political adversaries into into the coalition or at least it looks that way i wish he would have spent his energies and skills in applying them to reaching out to the palestinians and making peace with them but as i said that that hasn't been his priority he just doesn't believe in it I want to come back to the peace process, but just while we're on the subject of individual leaders, you've mentioned a couple of Israeli leaders, but you've known many of the leaders in the Middle East over recent decades. Are there one or two other leaders from the region that you would identify as as sort of very impressive individuals? One that I didn't know, but I've written about extensively, is Anwar Sadat Mm. of Egypt, the president before Hosni Mubarak who, first of all, fought the 1973 war, launched the 1973 war, mm-hmm. in order to make peace. At Camp David, yeah. And, yeah, and he was a brilliant politician who, like Rabin, gave up his life for the cause of peace. But he was a great statesman with an incredible vision of peace and a generosity of spirit, the likes of which we don't see often. The other one who was very impressive in the Arab world was King Hussein of Jordan. Mm-hmm. Another survivor, unlike Egypt, he had a very small country that was weak and poor and surrounded by big neighbors. But he too was deeply devoted to making peace. Mm. And like Sadat and Rabin, had the understanding that it was incumbent on leaders to end the conflict and lead their people to peace. You know, he, he really tried to, well, I was there when he lectured Netanyahu on this trying to convince him what he needed to do. Unfortunately, he failed. But those were the two great Mm. Arab leaders, Hussein and Saddam. All right. So when President Clinton left office, you returned to the think tank world at the Brookings Institution. And then in the Obama period, you returned to public service as Secretary of State John Kerry's special envoy for Middle East peace in 2013-2014. So peace slipped through Clinton's fingers at the end. And now you had an opportunity with Kerry and Obama to stitch it back together again. So tell us about that process, if you would, Martin. Well, by then, the relationship between the Israelis and Palestinians had deteriorated quite dramatically. The end of the Clinton administration, as you say, it slipped through our fingers, but something else happened at that time, which was the explosion of the Intifada. Mm -hmm. And that kind of consumed the peace process, destroyed trust between Israelis and Palestinians on both sides. There was tremendous carnage. Thousands of people died on both sides. And, you know, it's an interesting contrast with with Northern Ireland. When you make an agreement between warring parties and it breaks down, it's very hard to rebuild it. Mm. In the case of the Israelis and Palestinians, it's proven impossible. 
Whereas Northern Ireland, you, you had an agreement, and even though it took a hell of a long time to implement it, it was, you know, steady progress forward. There was no breakdown. But with the Israelis and Palestinians, there was a breakdown, and the destruction of trust has just made it extremely difficult to try to make any progress, despite the efforts of four American presidents. I mean, it wasn't just Clinton. It was mm. each one of them after that. Even President Trump wanted to try to make peace. Now, mm. Obama had tried in his first term and had failed. But when he appointed John Kerry to be his second Secretary of State after Hillary Clinton, John Kerry was determined that he was going to be the peacemaker. And he asked me to join him after he had succeeded in getting the two sides to agree to go back into negotiations on the final status issues to try to resolve the conflict. That was no mean feat on his part to get them to agree to sit down and negotiate again. And I was brought in to head up those negotiations for him and for President Obama. Just before he asked me to do this, I was quoted in the New York Times as saying, there's no chance mm -mm. that the maximum that Netanyahu would be prepared to offer was much less than the minimum that uh, Abu Mazen, the Palestinian leader, mm -hmm. Mahmoud Abbas, could accept. And so there was, there was just no chance. But Kerry asked me to come back, and out of a um, sense of duty, I decided to give it a go, even though I didn't think that there was really much prospect. And unfortunately, I proved myself to be right, at least in this case. And so, you know, notwithstanding the will of the United States to try to make peace there, the two leaders that we were dealing with did not share that same, well, yes, we could get them to sit down and to have their negotiators talk, but neither at that point, neither trusted the other. And that lack of trust was true of the people as well. Neither side believed that the other side wanted a solution. And so they didn't push their leaders. In fact, it was the opposite. I think Abu Mazen really feared that if he made any compromises to reach an agreement, he would be condemned as a traitor mm. by his people at that stage. And Netanyahu, having lost his government the first time around when he agreed to give up 13% of the West Bank, that was back in 1998, had, I think, sworn to himself after that that he was never going to put himself in a situation where his government could come down as a result of him making some concession to the Palestinians. So we were dealing with a situation in which neither side really wanted to make peace. And by that point, and I think this is really important, the status quo had become sustainable for both of these leaders. We walked around saying the status quo is not sustainable. It was one of our favorite talking points. But it wasn't true. For them, the status quo was preferable to the kind of risks, political risks that they would take in order to achieve a breakthrough to peace. And so, notwithstanding the will that we had to try to make peace, we couldn't do it. Mm. In fact, in my view, and I don't think John Kerry would agree with me on this, but from my experience in the negotiating room, I believe that the two sides were further apart after nine months of negotiations than they were at the beginning. Mm. Uh, you could sort of put that down to my lack of negotiating skills, but I think it also had to do with this attitude and approach that I described to you.
So I had the sad experience of presiding over what I believe will be the last Israeli-Palestinian final status negotiations in, in my lifetime. At the end of it, I felt like Moses at the end of his life when God told him to go up to Mount Nebo, which is in Jordan, mm -hmm. and showed him across the Jordan River the promised land. He said, there, you know, there it is, but mm -hmm. you won't cross into it. Well, I've seen the promised land. I know what it looks like. I know what a two-state solution looks like after all these years of being engaged in the negotiations. But the conditions are not right for getting there. At some point, it'll happen because the alternative to what we call now the two-state solution of an independent Palestinian state living alongside Israel in peace mm. and security, the alternative to that is no solution. One-state solution is not a solution, just a recipe for continued conflict. So eventually, both sides will come around to uh, realizing that this is the best uh, way to resolve their conflict. But as I say, I don't see that the conditions are there for that happening now. Of course, US presidents continue to try to make peace. And as you mentioned, in August last year, the US brokered the normalization of relations between Israel and the UAE and Bahrain. I think you described President Trump as the accidental peacemaker for his role in this. Why did you use that description? How significant are the Abraham Accords? Well, I called him the accidental peacemaker because it was not his intention to make peace between Israel and, and the United Arab Emirates. Let's remember, the United Arab Emirates weren't in conflict with Israel. His intention was to make peace between Israel and the Palestinians. And that's what the Trump uh, deal of the century was designed to do. In the process, he basically tried with Netanyahu to impose a peace on the Palestinians. They would not accept this. And so he was prepared to greenlight Netanyahu's annexation of the West Bank. And it was that green lighting of annexation and the prospect that that was about to happen that led the Emiratis to come forward and say, if you don't go ahead with annexation, we will normalize with you. And so that, that was why I say it was an accident. Mm. It, was the normal, it was the annexation that produced the normalization. It wasn't Trump's intention. But I do give Jared Kushner credit for recognizing the opportunity when it came knocking on the door, and he grabbed it. It was the Emiratis that took the initiative, not, not uh, Trump, but Kushner grabbed it and, and developed it and produced this normalization process. And I think it's a good thing. It's not something that we hadn't pushed very hard in the Clinton years. There was a whole process of normalization that went ahead in those years, including with the Emirates, but with the Moroccans and the Omanis and so on. But it all broke down after the Intifada. And until the Emirates broke the mold, the Arabs took the position that until there's an Israeli-Palestinian deal, there would be no normalization of relations. Now the Emiratis have broken with that. Mm. They have been prepared to fully normalize, but it's not clear yet whether that's going to be followed up by what would be the most important, which would be Saudi Arabia, which is the kind of crown jewel of the normalization process. And we'll have to see whether the Biden administration is able to create conditions in which that would become possible. Well, let me finish up, if I can, Martin, with a few questions about the Biden administration and the Middle East. And why don't we start 
with Saudi, as you've just mentioned it. During the 2020 campaign, Joe Biden was highly critical of Saudi Arabia. However, he decided he wouldn't punish Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman directly over the killing of Washington Post journalist Jamal Khashoggi. He did choose to sanction lower-ranked officials, and he said that MBS wouldn't be visiting the US anytime soon. Did he strike the right balance there, do you think? I do think so. I, I think the rollout of it wasn't very well done, but I do think he struck the right balance. Why did he need to strike a balance? Well, Saudi Arabia is still important to the United States. Its importance has declined in recent years as the United States itself is now an oil exporter, mm-hmm. and there's uh, plenty of alternative supplies of oil. But the Saudis are still the swing producer. They can affect the price and supply of oil quite dramatically. So they still matter to us. And they're still a partner in the effort to stabilize the region. But the problem is that Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince, is a rash, young, inexperienced, and ruthless leader who engages in all sorts of activities that are problematic for his own country, but problematic for the United States as well, not least of which is the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, as you mentioned, but also the treatment of his own people, his Mm -hmm. own dissenters. And perhaps worst of all, the war that he led his nation into in Yemen, which has created the worst humanitarian crisis today in the world. And I think that Biden's challenge is to get him to understand that he needs to behave in a different way. And for that, he still needs to engage with him. He can't treat him as a complete pariah, but he downgraded him. The only senior official in Biden's administration who's now allowed to talk to the Crown Prince is the Secretary of Defense, because he's also a Minister of Defense. Mm -hmm. Vice President Kamala Harris would be his natural counterpart since he's Crown Prince, but uh, she's not dealing with him. And certainly the president isn't going to deal with him directly. So he's being kind of put in the corner and told to kind of behave himself. And we'll see how that goes. The first challenge is to get him to exit the war in Yemen, to end that war, end Saudi Arabia's involvement in it. Mm. And for that purpose, Biden has appointed a special envoy uh, to try to work it. And and we'll see whether he can succeed at that. I think in the end, Biden is going to have to insist that Mohammed bin Salman end that war unilaterally, just pull out. That will be the only way to resolve that. But, you know, in essence, he needs to be able to work with him because he is the de facto ruler of an important player in the Middle East, but at the same time to make clear that it's not going to be business as usual. Mm -hmm. All right, Martin, let me turn to Iran and the nuclear deal, the JCPOA, that was signed during the Obama administration. Critics at the time said that it didn't offer a permanent solution to preventing Iran from acquiring nuclear weapons, and in the meantime, it licensed Iranian misbehavior. President Trump withdrew from the deal, mainly on those bases, but Biden obviously wants to get back into it, and and this week, the US and Iran moved closer to that. Would you encourage President Biden and Secretary Blinken on this current path? So I think it's important that they proceed on the path they're on because Iran is on its own path towards a nuclear weapons capability and maybe only a few months off. So we need to get them back into compliance with the agreement. And then I think it's clear that Biden's intention is to 
enter into a, a negotiation with them to, as, as he says, have a longer and stronger deal, one that takes care of the problems that exist in, in the current JCPOA, in particular the sunset clauses, which would enable Iran to start up its program again after uh, it expires in, I don't know, four years or so. That is the challenge, but I don't think that we can get to the longer and stronger agreement unless we go back to the original agreement. That the problem with that is that most of the sanctions that give the United States leverage over Iran will have to be lifted in order to get Iran back into compliance. And so the question of whether we have the leverage after that to get the longer and stronger deal is at this point unanswered and we will have to see. But I don't think there's any way of getting to that point without going back to the JCPOA. Let me ask you about Jordan. There's been a lot of argy-bargy in Amman over the past week. You mentioned King Hussein of Jordan earlier in the discussion. His son, King Abdullah, has now broken his silence and said that he's nipped in the bud and attempted sedition by his half-brother, Prince Hamza. Ordinarily, the Hashemites are pretty good at keeping their squabbles to themselves. What's happened in Amman over the past few weeks, Martin? And is this a real threat to Jordan's stability or not? Well, King Abdullah has faced a series of, of difficult problems. It started with Iraqi refugees from, from the Iraq war and then Syrian refugees from the Syrian civil war. Jordan is a poor country to start with. So the economic circumstances have been bad and there's been a good deal of discontent about that. On top of that, COVID is making a resurgence there. So there's a fair degree of discontent. Prince Hamza was King Hussein's favoured son. Mm. He wanted Abdullah to make Hamza crown prince. And indeed, Abdullah, when he became king, after he took over from King Hussein, did make Hamza crown prince, but then he removed him four years later and put his own son, Hussein, in as crown prince. So there's a good deal of resentment and tension between Hamza and, and Abdullah. And Hamza he looks like his father, King Hussein. Mm -hmm. He's popular with the tribes. And King Abdullah has a problem with the, with the tribes. He's never been very good at hanging out with them. But Hamza has been doing that and uh, has been getting some support there. And it seems like, and I say this cautiously because I'm hearing this, but I don't know just how real it is, but it seems like that there was some external support from Saudi Arabia for an effort to kind of destabilize the kingdom and have Abdullah moved aside and have Hamza take over. And Abdullah has now, as you said, nipped it in the bud. I don't think it's going to create more problems at this point. I think its situation is now stabilized, but it just shows that the king has some real challenges there and he needs to take care of, of them in terms of the economic uh, discontent uh, of the people. Finally, Martin, you've been working for the past few years on an important new book about Henry Kissinger's attempts to bring peace to the Middle East. What lessons should we draw from Kissinger's record about how to bring peace to the Middle East, including between the Israelis and the Palestinians? Well, I'm just 
putting the finishing touches to the book now. It'll be out in October. Mm-hmm. And it is a real in-depth historical study of Henry Kissinger's efforts to lay the foundations for the American-led peace process in the Middle East. And it's not he's not really remembered for this, even though in those days it was his greatest achievement, which were three agreements that he negotiated, two between Israel and Egypt and one between Israel and Syria that laid the foundations for the breakthrough to the Israel-Egypt peace treaty. But in studying that and in writing about it and in, in now reaching a conclusion, uh, what I discovered along the way was that Kissinger was far more focused on building a stable order in the Middle East. And the peace process was his vehicle, his mechanism for doing that. He didn't really believe in peace as the ultimate objective. He was far too much of a realist Mm -hmm. for that. But he did see the value of the peace process in terms of legitimizing the American-led order and stabilizing it, taking Egypt out of the conflict and giving Israel the ability to defend itself by itself in a way that created the mainstays of of the American-led order in the region. And I think that one of the important lessons of his approach to this was gradualism, what he called step-by-step diplomacy. Because he didn't believe in peace as an end state, because he didn't think the Arabs really were ready to accept a Jewish state amongst them, he wanted to have a gradual approach that would acclimatize both sides to the kind of steps that they would have to take and the risks that they would have to take. And he saw this as a long process. And I think that Yitzhak Rabin took Kissinger's idea of gradualism and applied it step-by-step process to the Palestinians. Now, we actually need to get back to that today, that the conditions are not ripe, as I discovered when I worked with John Kerry to try to achieve a breakthrough to a real end of the conflict. And we have to go back to a step-by-step approach, a gradual approach of ripening until a point where it becomes possible again, to try for an for a ultimate resolution of the conflict. And so I think that Joe Biden understands that. He did not appoint a special envoy for Israeli-Palestinian negotiations. The focus is very much now on a kind of bottom-up, step-by-step approach. And I think that, that that's what Henry Kissinger would have said is the right way to go. Martin, I love listening to you speak about the Middle East. Today, you've described your journey from London to Sydney to Washington with side trips to Jerusalem and Ramallah and Cairo and Amman and the other great cities of the Middle East. You're a great US diplomat, but we still claim you as an Aussie, and I certainly hope that you can visit your hometown of Sydney soon. In the meantime, Martin Indyk, thank you for speaking with me today on the Director's Chair. Thank you, Michael, and uh, it's been a real pleasure to be with you, and I'm a great devotee of the Director's Chair. You've done a great job there. You've been listening to The Director's Chair, a podcast by the Lowy Institute, hosted by me, Michael Fullylove. Thanks for listening, and please tune in to the next episode of The Director's Chair. 